If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Side Hustle Show 271, brilliant blogging, ruthless productivity, and guaranteed success. It's time for another round of 20 questions with Nick. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because job-free income is empowering. Special solo show for you today. It's time for another round of 20 questions with Nick. I'm diving into the proverbial listener mailbag and see what we can pull out. As usual, lots of fun and challenging questions. And as is customary on these episodes, I've selected 20 to run through today for your benefit and listening pleasure. This is the fifth installment of the series. So notes and links are at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A5. Of course, if you have a question, feel free to send it over to nick at sidehustlenation.com. That is my email. I can't guarantee an email response, though I do do my best. The other place to ask uh, is the free Side Hustle Nation community on Facebook at sidehustlenation.com slash FB. Uh, that'll redirect you over there and you can tap into the wisdom of more than 8,000 fellow side hustlers and entrepreneurs. But beware, you just might be featured in the next round of 20 questions. Ready? Let's do it. All right, question number one comes from Andrea. She says, I'm totally new to the blogging world and I'm considering starting a niche blog and I'm debating whether or not I should use my real name, a pen name, or if I should create a company name. My question is, what are the drawbacks, advantages, legalities of using your real name, pen name, or taking that big step to create a company name? Sadly, I'm wondering if using my Hispanic surname is going to somehow negatively influence my site traffic. It's sad I even have to think about this. And wondering uh, about whether creating an LLC will provide more protection in terms of future litigation, if any. So, Andrea, my take on this is it's totally up to you, you and your comfort level about using your own name or using a pen name. Personally, I wouldn't be too concerned about a Hispanic surname, and it may depend on your subject matter too. Like, for example, some friends in the personal finance space write, write under pen names because they're sharing sensitive net worth details that they wouldn't necessarily want their coworkers to know about. Others have created entire online personas and brands around their pen name. And think about, you know, Mark Twain and, you know, some famous pen name examples from, from history. It just gives a little layer of privacy, though I imagine it can be a pain to set up and manage separate social profiles. But if it helps you sleep easier, totally worth it. As far as an LLC, this can provide some legal protection. In fact, historically, that's been the main benefit of uh, setting up an LLC. But you mentioned uh, you're in San Francisco, which means you can have a minimum cost of $800 a year to the state to set that up, which may or may not be worth it starting out. Now, the other consideration is with the new tax law that just passed, my understanding is that setting up an LLC could reduce your taxable income by 20%. So there's some math we've got to do there. Um, We should hear more about that actually next week on the show. Of course, 
I'm not a lawyer and I'm not an accountant, so always best to check with a professional on, uh, on both of those. Question two is from John. He says, I need to get more ruthless with my time. I like that phrase. Have you discovered since growing Side Hustle Nation that your, so- that your social status has started to lift over time? More and more uh, people want your time and attention, yet you are less and less able to give either. How have you managed that shift? Well, John, getting more ruthless with your time is tough. I think it's only natural to try and be polite and try to help everyone and try to answer every email. And you almost feel selfish not doing it. Like, it'll only take five or 10 minutes to write a really good response. But then you multiply that times 10 or 20 times a day. And all of a sudden, it's sucking up a huge amount of time that's not moving any of your other high priority projects forward. So a few things that have worked for me in the last 12 months. Number one is I'm trying to use Derek Sivers' hell yes or no decision making framework. And I still getting like I'm not 100% there. I still find myself getting sucked down the rabbit hole of non hell yes work. But I really like that framework. If if you're not super excited about something, like maybe that's maybe that should be a no. Uh, The second thing that's worked for me is try and remind myself daily that email is largely somebody else's agenda. A tool that's helped me is actually SaneBox, which was a sponsor on the show last year. So I decided to try them out and found their filtering algorithms to actually be almost scary good. And there's going to be a few false positives and you can kind of drag and drop things to train different uh, senders to different places they need to go. But that's been a huge time saver for me. The third thing is I try and tackle tackle at least one proactive task before diving into my inbox. This is one of the uh, micro habits that I set up early last year. And surprising, I don't know why it took me a decade to figure this out, but that's been really helpful. And I have a little, you know, checkbox on the on the tracker sheet that says, okay, I did that today. The other thing I started last year was a theme day system, uh, which I really like. And the biggest shift uh, of that was only taking meetings on Tuesday. So if there is a meeting that I want to say yes to, usually the only time I'll make those calls available is on Tuesday. And that's get a, uh, set up through schedule once. Like, so it says, hey, book a meeting. Uh, you know, pick a time here. And Tuesday is like the only day that people can do that. And so that's freed up bigger blocks of time the rest of the days. And having kind of the theme day system, even if it's only mental, even if it's only in my head, kind of gives me permission to work on certain tasks at certain times, which has been helpful for me instead of just, you know, having a complete blank slate at, a, at every day. Uh, and the fifth thing was saying no to one-on-one consulting, one-on-one coaching, or charging more for it. Like if people really insist, like I really want to talk to you, like fine. I'll, I usually will send them over to Clarity where I think clarity.fm where I think the rate is 200 bucks an hour right now. And so it, just, it gives people a perfect out. Like, hey, if that's not a great fit for you right now, like it's totally fine. But that's kind of um, something that's helped me get a little more ruthless with my time. Now regarding the social status shift, the biggest change that I've noticed is at conferences, conferences like Podcast Movement and FinCon have become like family reunions. I've probably talked about this before. It's like a really fun chance to go and hang out with my internet friends, like my wife calls them. And being an introvert, it really helps when people come up to me and start the conversation. Like when I would go to conferences before starting the podcast, it was a completely different experience and not nearly as much fun. So that's really the biggest uh, social status shift, if you could call it that. Question three comes from Paul, who asks, I'm having a hard time figuring out a name or name for my website ideas for a blog like yours or an affiliate marketing site, any ideas or names? 
Well, Paul, of course, it depends what you're going to be blogging about, but I really like a tool called NameMesh.com, NameMesh.com for brainstorming uh, domain names. There was actually a really interesting discussion in the Facebook group, um, SideHustleNation.com slash FB. We'll uh, redirect you over there if you're not already a member of our free community. But um, So there was a discussion about domain names mysteriously disappearing, mysteriously getting registered after searching for them on GoDaddy. And several people backed up this it's like almost a conspiracy theory. So I wouldn't search on GoDaddy until you're ready to register. Check it out on Name Mesh. You can kind of brainstorm different keyword combinations in there and see what uh, see what might be available. Question four is from Tim. Tim says, hey, I'm from South Africa, and I would love to be able to have a side hustle where I'm earning US dollars as the exchange rate is really attractive. Do you have any ideas as to which side hustles can be done from South Africa to target an American audience or market? Well, Tim, man, every pretty much anything you do online, freelancing, consulting, uh, I think that would be a good fit as long as the skills you have are relevant to American business owners. I don't see a problem in that. I've hired freelancers and contractors from all over the world. If you hit sidehustlenation.com slash grow, you'll have a big list of ideas how to get your business in front of more potential clients. I like that idea. This is kind of like goes back to the Tim Ferriss, like geo arbitrage, like the holy grail is you're, you know, earning dollars and living on pesos and and paying for help in rupees or something was his example. But there's a, a, there's definitely something to be said for, for the geo-arbitrage opportunity there, Tim. Question five comes from James. James says, for a person who is a professional, has a career, and does a side hustle and wants to grow it, how do I manage a professional and side hustle profile? And he's talking specifically about LinkedIn or Twitter. Like, what's the best way to do that without feeling like you're, he says, cheating on your wife and her finding out. Well, James, thank you for the note and for that interesting <laughs> example. But if you think there's a conflict of interest uh, or if people at work or specifically your boss like wouldn't be cool with the side hustle, I would probably keep that quiet and focus on finding clients in other ways. Now, you can go down the pen name route we talked about earlier. But if the two are somewhat related, if the day job and the expertise there and the side hustle are somewhat related, I think it can actually help strengthen your profile. The other thing I've seen people do is list both roles on LinkedIn simultaneously. Hey, you know, I started at this company at such and such a date. Hey, I also started at this company, you know, a couple years later, and that's my side hustle. And here's what I do there. Like with 44 million side hustlers in the US, like it's becoming a pretty common thing. So I, I don't know if this is as big a worry as maybe it was uh, several years ago. Question six is from Ben. He says, a win for me would be making $500 in the next 30 days. What's my best next step? Well, Ben, let me give you three potential paths to go down. Number one is kind of the the sharing economy route, the peer-to-peer economy route. These are services and apps and marketplaces like Lyft, like Uber, like Uber Eats, if you don't want to drive people around in your car, Uh, Airbnb, uh, Rover.com, which is like Airbnb, but for dogs, uh, TaskRabbit, Postmates. I think you could pick up an extra 500 bucks a month on one or more of these platforms uh, without too much trouble at all. But there's a limit to your earning potential there. So option number two is to sell a service. You probably got something that you're good at that other businesses or individuals might need help with. That could be anything from cleaning or painting houses all the way up to database consulting, CAD modeling, or anything in between. Now, if you hit up sidehustlenation.com slash freelancing, you find a ton of resources on how to figure out what kind of service to offer and how to go get clients for those services. And then the third option, number three, is kind of the subject of an episode we did with Scott Volker from The Amazing Seller, is just buy low, sell high. You'll find some products locally to turn around, 
and sell for a profit. You can check out my recent chat with Ryan Grant in episode 260, who's taken this to an entirely new level, brought on a team, bought a warehouse, or is renting out a warehouse. You're really going crazy with this same, you know, buy low, sell high stuff. And then uh, a little bit deeper in the archives, an episode um, that you might enjoy is number 147 with Rob Stevenson, the flea market flipper. I thought that was a fun one as well. We're kind of going back to that same buy low, sell high. Where can you find 500 bucks in profit in the next 30 days? Question seven is from Fikret, who asks, one question I'm struggling with is why anyone who's making ten dollars or $20,000 a month would teach others his methods so they can compete with him? This is probably my favorite question of the, of the bunch. And there's a whole range of answers depending on you know, how cynical you want to get. Like on the far end uh, of call it the, the sliding scale of internet marketing benevolence, you got people who legitimately have this you know pure abundance mindset and want to share what they've learned so that others can benefit. A lot of marketers position themselves that way, but I'm kind of like Fikret. Like, I don't really buy it. On the other far end of the spectrum, you've got some shady players who've never made a dollar online outside of teaching other people how to make money online. And there's some there's some weird circular logic going on over there. Now, I think most people land somewhere in the middle, and I'm going to include myself in that group. And part of the inspiration for the Side Hustle Nation blog and the Side Hustle Show podcast which, you know, both started as side projects to the footwear affiliate business I was running at the time, comes from uh, Nathan Berry. Now, you might know, you might recognize that name. So Nathan is the founder of ConvertKit. But before that, he was an app designer, I think. And what he discovered was that there are those who can do a thing like app design, and there are those who can do and teach a thing like app design. And that those who can do both are opening up entirely new income streams, something sometimes with a much higher upside potential. I think Steve Chu from MyWifeQuitterJob.com is a good example of somebody following that model. Like he and his wife built their online store, BumblebeeLinens.com, I believe. And while they were doing that, he was blogging about the stuff he was learning and experimenting with in e-commerce. And of course, he eventually turned that into an online course and just sold the crap out of it over the last few years. Has he created more competition for himself? Maybe, I don't know, maybe people have entered the wedding linen space as well, but he's also helped a ton of people get started in online business and made a really nice additional income stream too. Question eight comes from Kevin. He says, what's the best way to find mastermind groups or guides for starting your own mastermind group? So Kevin, I have seen some mastermind groups forming organically in the Side Hustle Nation Facebook group. Again, sidehustlenation.com slash FB will redirect you over there. So it might be worthwhile to put a proposal out in there. The groups that I've been a part of have had an organizer, you, Kevin, in this case, uh, try and rally a few like-minded people to join. And as far as the structure, we meet every week or every other week on Zoom or Google Hangouts. And we typically start by sharing our wins since the last meeting. And in one group, we share what we call our kicks in the nuts, basically the bad stuff that happened, recognizing, look, it's not all wins all the time. And then we have a rotating hot seat with one person seeking feedback or input on one issue or project in their business. And there are some paid mastermind groups as well, which can be hit or miss depending on who's in them. I've hosted some in the past and some groups are awesome and people made amazing progress. And honestly, others were less productive, but I'm trying to retool, relaunch that program in the future, trying to think of what that might uh, what that might look like. I think the main criteria starting out is you know trying to find people who are in your network working kind of towards similar goals, it doesn't necessarily have to be on similar projects, but kind of like that are at the same level as you, they can kind of speak your language, if that makes sense. 
When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Question nine comes from Marius. He says, I've noticed you started using ActiveCampaign as your email marketing service. May I know why you have chosen this software? So Marius, basically, so I was running AWeber for years and years and years. Nothing but love for AWeber, right? Basically, ActiveCampaign allows for better segmentation and automation and targeting than AWeber did. So an example that I'm already seeing much better results, much better engagement from my welcome sequences, since now they're targeted to what the reader specifically signed up for, instead of one generic, you know, one size fits all autoresponder that I had in AWeber before. The theory is that should allow for a much better and more relevant user experience, especially for new subscribers. For example, when you sign up for a lead magnet related to blogging, I can send you information specific to blogging. How novel is that? Like how to get more traffic, the most important posts you should have on your site, my favorite plugins, stuff like that. Versus, you know, just like I said, you know, kind of the common lowest common denominator, one size fits all autoresponder. Um, the other thing I'd like to do sooner or later is let people opt out of the weekly Thursday newsletter, but stay subscribed to other updates. That's something you can do pretty easily within Active Campaign that I couldn't necessarily do before. It's like, hey, I don't, like, I still want to stay on your list. I still want to hear from you, but I don't, like, I'm already subscribed to the podcast or something. Like, I don't need, I don't need the newsletter in my inbox, whatever, for whatever reason. The other thing that I do love about Active Campaign is the area code geo filter, uh, like geography based uh, targeting, which I've used several times to send out uh, invites for local meetups. We did this in, in Dallas and in Atlanta and in Seattle. So the system is guessing those area codes based on your IP address when you open a message. So the invites 
only go out to people who've recently engaged. It's kind of a cool way to, to filter it out as well. But unfortunately, it hasn't all been, you know, sunshine and unicorns with Active Campaign. And surprisingly, there's some filters that AWeber had no problem with that Active Campaign for all their data and all the ways to slice and dice it somehow can't do off the shelf. I think their interface is slow and clunky. And I think their support is is pretty weak, honestly, compared to AWeber, at least at the service level that I'm currently at, which is like their entry level plan. I've also had some issues with deliverability that I'm not 100% confident are completely resolved, but I need to do a little more due diligence on that one. On the plus side, it's significantly less expensive than AWeber was for the number of subscribers that I brought over um, for way more functionality. But um, if the subscribers aren't seeing the emails, that really doesn't matter. So the jury's still out. I know there's no perfect email system. I shopped Drip and ConvertKit before making the switch last summer as well. And it's just, it's a huge pain to migrate from one service to another. So hopefully I can get the deliverability sorted and everything else I can totally work around. So favorite time to ask uh, next time you get an email from me, would you mind replying even if just to say, yes, I got it. That that should help. So thank you for that. Question 10 is from Adiyemi. He says, could you please help me with practical guides that guarantee success on Fiverr? So I've published several practical guides about earning money on Fiverr. So if you go to sidehustlenation.com slash blog and search for Fiverr, they'll all pop right up. But here's the thing. None of them guarantee success. That's on you. And that goes for Fiverr, for Udemy, for Amazon, any platform, any side hustle out there. You can read all the guides. You can take all the courses in the world. And look, I'm all about educating yourself and learning the best practices. But ultimately, it's about putting the information into action. What works for me or my guests might not work for you. You might have to tweak it and find your own angle. It's like, you know, batteries not included, some assembly required. Just like a recipe book doesn't guarantee you're going to be a great chef. I can't guarantee you're going to be the next top rated seller on Fiverr or anywhere else. What I can guarantee is if you get started and stay started, you're going to be in a better place as an entrepreneur a year from now because there's a virtuous circle where action breeds results and results breed action. Question 11 is from Tabs who asks, I've got some personal repetitive tasks that need to be done and monitored over time, basically listing items I'm selling from the house and arranging pickup. After that, there's business admin assisting me with research for my content writing and generating leads, and then maybe some bookkeeping using the Zero software as well. I'm comfortable with outsourcing because I'm a freelance designer and web developer myself, but what I'm concerned about is whether I should hire more than one person to assist me or not. Some of the content online lists suggest things like lead generation are under administrative and blogging, while others suggest I'm going to need a specialized sales and marketing expert. Well, Tabs, I think the general rule, again, there's going to be exceptions. The general rule is if you can write detailed process documentation, like here is your uh, formula, here is your recipe, not a ton of critical thinking involved. It's something a general VA can probably handle. For example, if you have a system for generating leads already, if you have a system for you know, researching the, the content that you want to create, that's something you could probably plug a VA into with just a little bit of training. On the other hand, if you're in the position of saying, hey, my business could use more leads and you're looking for somebody to come up with the answer to that much more open-ended question, I think it's probably going to require a specialist and the accompanying specialist price tag. And the bookkeeping role is probably separate altogether. I think you're going to need a specialized you know, bookkeeper or somebody, at least somebody who's done that before, if that, uh, if that makes sense. Question 12 is from Elaine. She asks, I just finished watching your free course on how to start a blog at blogstartercourse.com. Do you use one website, 
for all your different topics, even if they are completely non-related. So, Elaine, there's definitely an advantage to creating different sites for different topic areas. But if they are related, I think you should keep them under one site. For example, I have stuff on e-commerce, on blogging, on freelancing, all under Side Hustle Nation because they're all related to kind of the side hustle umbrella. They're all, they all all fall under that side hustle umbrella. But if I wanted to start writing about something way off topic, like you know how to potty train your kid or how to stop a Shih Tzu from barking, those are probably better off on a separate site. You know, one example or maybe one exception that I should bring up is ChasingFoxes.com. They have tons of stuff from travel to saving money to cooking. And it's all on one site, ChasingFoxes.com. And it's all under the umbrella of living a better life. So you can go super broad and they've made it work. But for me, you know, generally more focused, more narrow content tends to speak better to an end reader that says, okay, this is the site for me. These people are going to help me solve my problem. Question 13 is from Jasmine. She says, I'm a side hustle artist and I normally give my art away to friends or do commissions. I want to start a company and do my own designs. Right now I'm creating greeting cards and I've got some promising feedback from friends and even some stores, but I want to know if I should stick with greeting cards since I'm just starting out or if I should start to make prints, t-shirts and see what's most popular. I really like this diversification versus simplification question. So I posted it in the Side Hustle Nation Facebook group. Uh, not with Jasmine's details, just kind of the simplify versus diversify part. And the consensus was this, simplify first, diversify second. That said, if customers are requesting the work on different media, on prints or t-shirts, like by all means, give it to them. This is one I definitely wrestle with both on the side hustle project front and on the investing front. I want to try out a bunch of different stuff. Like That's what's interesting and exciting to me. On the other hand, should I simplify? Should I do the one thing thing and focus? I get the logic and the power behind it, but it also seems like I'd get bored. I don't know. How do you balance the simplify versus diversify question? You can let me know in the comments, sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A5. Question 14 is from Kimberly. She says, how did you get started getting podcast guests? Did you just cold call folks you wanted on the show on social channels, or did you build relationships first and then ask them to come on? So I started out with people in my network, which helped because I think I would have been super nervous talking to, you know, the quote, big name guests, especially in the beginning, even years into the show, I was still nervous to talk to people like John Acuff and Dan Harris. But starting with the network, after that, I branched out from there asking, well, who else should I talk to? Who else would be a good fit for the show? Would you mind passing along an intro? Kind of like that sort of thing, that kind of language talking to the, you know, trying to expand your your network that way. So out of the 250-ish interview shows, there really have only been a handful of straight up cold invites. So I guess I try and make it a little bit warmer first. And what that looks like in practice is meeting people at conferences, letting them know you heard them on another show, hitting reply to one of their newsletters, just like removing some of that like straight up like a complete stranger factor. Now my strategy today in getting guests is topic first, guest second. So I try and figure out the subjects and stories and tactics I want to cover, and then I look out into the world and try and figure out, okay, who's the best person to come on and share that? Question 15 comes from Elaine. I believe the same Elaine that was just a couple questions ago. She asks, how many posts should I actually write before setting up my blog? And my answer to that is probably zero, unless you know writing really isn't your jam, in which case blogging probably isn't the best side hustle for you anyways. So let me explain that, and then I'll dive into kind of the first five posts that I think you should write. There are a few benefits to setting up your blog first. So first, 
Um, as soon as you register your domain, it starts racking up domain age, which is a small but non-zero search engine ranking factor. Second, picking a domain and picking a theme can help you visualize the site, like where, what content should go where, uh, you know, what you want people to do once they land on your site, all that good stuff. Number three is the earlier you can get your content online and indexing in Google, the better. And if money is a motivator, if money is a factor, having the clock start on your hosting account can help light a fire to keep you working on the site, which wouldn't be as urgent if you're just stockpiling articles on your computer or on Google Docs, like waiting to have you know, a critical mass, like the timing is never going to be right to, you know, put it all out there. But if you're just starting out a brand new site, there are a few posts I think you should write first. And so here are my recommendations for those. The first is your definition post. In this post, you're going to lay out your definition and your interpretation of the primary topic. For example, if you have a site on email marketing, the title of your post could be something like, what is email marketing? And you can explain what it is, how it works, why it's important you'll find that this type of post attracts users at the very early stages of discovery from question-related queries like, you know, what is email marketing, email marketing definition, how email marketing works, you know, keywords like that, right? And so the example on my site, I believe, you know, from way back in the archives, there's a post called what is a side hustle. The second thing that you're probably going to want, right, is the about page, because this is one of the most visited pages on your site. People, at least me, uh, at least I am always curious to see, you know, who's who's writing this stuff. So this is a chance to show off some personality, like why you care about the topic and why people should pay attention to you. But the about page is also about the reader. It's an opportunity to lay out who your site is for and who it's not. And one of my biggest pet fees is like an about page with no pictures. Like, so by all means, like include a picture, like, what do you look like? Who am I? Who am I reading? You know, and I don't profess to have the best about page in the world, but tried to have some fun with it and tweaked it over the years at sidehustlenation.com slash about if you want to check that one out. Post number three is what uh, what you can call the fishbone post. So this is a topic I learned about at Traffic and Conversion Summit last year. So the fishbone post is an epic list post of helpful skills or ideas that are critical to your primary topic. And if we want to continue with our email marketing example, it could be something like 73 killer list building strategies that you can try today. Now, under each of the points in your list, you write a couple paragraphs and you link to the best resource online for that strategy. And this does a couple things for you. First, it gives you an amazing piece of content that people will love to share. And second, it gives you an excuse to reach out to everybody that you link to. And for a brand new site, like that's a big deal. Like, oh, I, yeah, I linked to you. I featured you in this article. They might share it as well. And that would be great. But it's an easy way to strike up a conversation, perhaps a relationship with people who are likely to be other players in your niche. And over time, I think your goal should be to replace as many of those external links as you can with internal links to content you create. So the example on Side Hustle Nation is sidehustlenation.com slash ideas. It's 99 side hustle business ideas that you can start today. And it you know goes through and each one tries to d- dig people deeper into the content on the site. Oh, you want to learn about you know flipping stuff on eBay? Like here, we did an episode on that. You want to learn about blogging? Here's my favorite episodes on blogging and just trying to, you know, it's a gateway, it's a gateway drug into the site. Like think of the fishbone post as that kind of material. The fourth kind of post you might want to consider is the influencer roundup post. If you uh, search like on Site Hustle Nation, like how to launch a bestseller, 25 authors share their top book launch tips. Like that's kind of what a roundup post is. You ask one question, one bit of advice from 
as many influencers or experts as you can find and you put it all into one post. Basically, the goal is to try and generate some social media buzz from those contributors, but really also to get on the radar of other people in your space. And number five is the resources post, which is a compilation list of all your favorite tools, software, and products related to your main topic, where you're you're explaining how you use them and how they can benefit your readers. Now, done right, the resources post can be one of your most popular and most profitable pages on your site, thanks to the magic of affiliate marketing. In the the example of the email marketing site, it could be something like, you know, 19 tools every email marketer should have in their arsenal. On Side Hustle Nation, the example is sidehustlenation.com slash resources, and it's 41 side hustle tools I use every day, or I forget the exact title, but it's basically, you know, this is my favorite stuff, and some of those have affiliate programs, some of them don't, but it's, uh, you know, hopefully a helpful article for anybody trying to build an, an online business. So those are the first five, or those are the five articles I think you ought to have uh, to, to have kind of a strong foundation for your site to stand on. Question 16 is from Emmy in the Facebook group, and this one actually started a pretty good discussion. She says, I was reading a book the other day, and the author mentioned that people who work for themselves are all salespeople in some capacity, and I realized that was true, but that I am not a salesperson. So can anyone recommend a book that would be good or books that would be good for someone who isn't a salesperson but wants to improve that skill? So my recommendation was Influence by Robert Cialdini, one of my all-time faves, but other people mentioned uh, some other cool titles in this thread as well. Among those, Fanatical Prospecting, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Timeless, right? To Sell is Human by Dan Pink, Go-Givers Sell More, the original Go-Giver, one of my all-time favorites as well, Get Clients Now, I think Dennis Smith recommended that one on our recent Facebook Live, Sell or Be Sold by Grant Cardone, The Science of Selling, and How I Raised Myself from failure to success in selling. Of course, we'll link all those up in the show notes for this episode at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A5. Question 17 comes from Kate. What can you do when a company you want to promote denies your affiliate application? Kate, this is super frustrating and it happens to me even today, Um, but you do have some options. Sometimes this happens when companies look at your site, they don't really see how they're going to fit in. Sometimes it happens when your site is really new or still under construction. And sometimes for whatever reason, some companies have it set to auto decline every new application. I'm not really sure what that's about, but it happened to me just a couple of months ago. So here is what you can do. Number one is ask them to reconsider. Understand that a one-time rejection is not a lifetime ban. Most of the time, the affiliate network or the company you're trying to work with is going to have an email address where you can contact. A lot of time, it's something like affiliates at companyname.com, which doesn't always instill a lot of confidence that it's an email inbox is going to be monitored, but it's better than nothing. You can also try the support at the affiliate network where this company has their program. That would be Commission Junction, um, Flex Offers, Share Sale, wherever that may be, or even the generic contact us on the company's site. So what do you say when you reach out? You say something like, hey, love your product, wanted to reach out about joining your affiliate program. My site is blah, blah, blah.com. And I'm looking forward to sharing your company with my readers. If you have any questions, please let me know, you know, short, sweet. And sometimes you can even say, Hey, I was recently, recently applied. I noticed my application was denied. I'd like to request, you know, reconsideration. And here's why. The second option is to become a sub affiliate. So even if your affiliate application is denied, you can usually still promote that product and get the majority of the commissions through a sub-affiliate service like Viglink. It's V-I-G-Link.com. 
And this is actually the route that I had to take with a recent company that auto declined me. So Viglink takes, I think, 25 or 30% of the commission, but 70 to 75% is still better than zero. And because of the volume that they drive, sometimes they have negotiated rates where you might even be better off, you know, running links through them. So definitely a good workaround if you can't get a response. And the third alternative is to find a competitor to promote. This is kind of the last resort because if you have one company in mind, there's probably a reason for that. But they may not be the only game in town, so it might be worthwhile to see if you can get in to their competitor's affiliate program. And who knows, maybe once you start making sales for the competition, they come to their senses and let you in. Question 18, it comes from Praveen. He says, I'm reaching out to you for a roundup post. Let me know if you're interested and I will send you the question. So he's going about the roundup post strategy we just talked about. But Praveen, how about you send the question in the first email? Question 19 comes from Chanel. What is the number one tip you have for people who are planning to quit their job in the next year to take their side hustle full time? Well, Chanel, congrats on making the leap yourself. As you know, this is a transition. The transition from employed to self-employed is an awesome and sometimes pretty scary jump to make. And to make that leap a little less stressful, the advice that I would give is to aim to build your side hustle income to the point where it consistently covers at least your monthly expenses. And you've got hopefully several months worth of cash savings as a buffer. Now, remember, you don't necessarily need to replace your old day job salary right out of the gate, but you'll breathe a little bit easier knowing your business has a proven track record. I'm trying to think back to when I quit. I don't know that I was fully replacing my day job salary, but I know that for the last six or 12 months, at least was covering my expenses with the with the shoe business side hustle. And the other piece of that was, hey, with an extra 40, 50 hours a week, I'm pretty confident I could get there. I imagine it's only going to go up from here. The other factor is to budget in how are your expenses going to change? You might have a lower commuting costs, but health insurance might be a big expensive wild card, at least it is for everyone in the States that can put a major kink in your numbers. Now, some friends and guests have recommended Liberty HealthShare as an alternative, which seems to be one of a handful of faith-based HealthShare co-ops, which you may or may not qualify for, or you may or may not agree with their coverage, but could be an option for some people out there. Question 20 is from Amanda. She says, I don't have time for a side hustle. How can I make time? Amanda, I hate to break it to you. There's never enough time. It's not a problem. It disappears even after you quit your job and you take your side hustle full time because there's always going to be more stuff that you want to tackle. First step is to do a real life time audit to figure out where your 168 hours a week are actually going. 168 hours. That's a lot of time. You can use a tool like atimelogger.com to get this done, which was recommended by Steve Scott on the Side Hustle Show or even just an Excel spreadsheet. But at the end of the week, at the end of two weeks of doing this, I think you'll have discovered some hidden time opportunities you didn't think were there. Now, on top of that, I've found that I'm more productive during this exercise because it kind of gamifies it. I'm on the clock. The next step is to shift your language. Instead of saying, I don't have time, I don't have time, try and force yourself to say the more honest, I prioritized something else. Now, I'm just as guilty of playing the I didn't have time card, but I'm trying to reposition it in my mind as priorities instead. And that has been helpful because by definition, you know, we vote our priorities with how we spend our time. Like if something is important to us, we make time for it and your side hustle is no different. And question 21, bonus question also from Amanda. What made you decide to start side hustling? Was there a motivating factor? Well, of course, there was a motivating factor. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have done it. But there really were a couple factors for me. The first was a desire to use my free time more productively than just 
you know, watching TV or playing video games. And the second reason, the bigger, more optimistically hopeful reason was that I thought someday I might be able to, you know, quote, be my own boss and be an entrepreneur. And it wasn't that I necessarily disliked my day job. It was just that I didn't have much desire to climb that corporate ladder. It seemed way more exciting to see if I could build my own ladder. But let me turn this around and ask you, what made you decide to start side hustling? What was your motivating factor? Let me know in the comments for this episode at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A5. That's it for me. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show, where we're diving into some of the most important changes with the new tax law that you need to know about. I'll see you then. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to the Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com.